0: I invite you to pray with me specifically uh, that this passage would uh, do its work in us. Pray for me. Um, numbers is challenging, as you know, if you've been with us as we move through the book of Numbers. Um, we don't want to preach our favorite verses. We need to preach what's there, and we'll get into that. But I invite you to pray with me, please, uh, that this would be a time that's well worth our time. Father, um, If we had our way, the Bible would look very different. And we thank you that we don't play, make it up as we go along, religion, but that we come to you, we ask you what you have for us. You, through your prophets, have inscripturated a revelation of yourself. We want to see you. So, Father, we ask that in the next few moments as we look at your word, as somber as it might be, Father, that we would see the beauty of you in it, that we would leave here prepared to live our lives in this world the way you want us to live our lives, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the advantages of moving through a book like Numbers, uh, one of the advantages of doing that on your own time. Some of you, I know your devotional life, you grab a book and there's verses pulled out of Scripture, maybe in small little chunks, and then the author gives you a couple of good stories that go along with it. That's not wrong, but if you're, that's your steady diet. You're always going to get a caricature of God. You're not going to let God reveal himself to you. It's kind of like dating somebody through proxy. You never really get to know the person except through their friends, but you never really spent time with that person. To spend time with the Lord is to spend time with His Word, what He says about Himself, not always hearing about Him through what other people say from the Word. You need your own Bible marked up, highlighted, and even though there's tough passages to understand, you will understand more and more as you go. But you've got to get the discipline of looking at Scripture on its own terms and let God speak on his own terms rather than letting others sort of curate the verses that least offend us, kind of thing. And today's a tough one. Today's a tough one. So, a question to just put on the stove for you Can God murder? Can God commit murder? That's an interesting question. Well, as you look to Numbers, you're like, what's the answer? I don't know. (laughs) Let's let the text talk to us for a minute before we rush to the answers. Numbers chapter 31. This is one of those passages when you listen to the atheists, when you listen to comedians and they make fun of Christianity. Maybe you've listened to some of this over coffee at work And people tell you why it's dumb to be a Christian, why it's horrible to follow this so-called God. They'll point to a verse like this. How do you follow a God like that? Now, we can duck our heads in the sand and pretend like verses like this don't exist. Or we can look at it and try to understand what's going on there. Of course, I think we need to do that. Right at the top of chapter 31, the Lord gives Moses a specific command to go kill people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. We know Moses is going to not go with them into the promised land. Moses is going to die in the wilderness as the Israelites go with Joshua into the promised land. Joshua has already been chosen as his successor. But Moses has one last task go kill the Midianites. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So they were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets of the alarm in his hand. Hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechim, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle their flocks, and all their goods, all their cities and the places where they lived, and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eliezer the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Now if we stop there, I feel like many of us could probably handle that. Hey, this is war. These were the men of, of Midian that were against them. You remember Balaam in verse 8. You remember that several chapters ago, he was the one trying to get Israel cursed uh, so that um, the Midianites can destroy them. And so this is an enemy of Israel. It's not some neighbor that they're just innocent fishermen on the sea they're just innocent cheap herders in the wilderness and then god's like you know what just we need more space too much population on the earth kill these random people well we know that's not the case we know these are people that had it in for israel but they didn't go far enough and this is where it gets really tough Starting in verse 13, Moses and Eliezer, the priests and all the chiefs of the congregation, went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Why was he angry with them? Because they killed all the males and they should have taken them as prisoner? What are you doing killing them? No, they didn't kill enough. Verse 15, Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. You remember when that plague broke out? Their women did that. Their women enticed you into idolatry, into fornication. And that's why the plague broke out against you. They try to get between you and me, God is saying. Verse 17, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Encamp camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person, and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. And the passage presses forward into their purification rites and divvying up the spoils of war. And we won't look into that into great detail because I think if you're like me, most of us probably get stuck on this first half of the chapter. Kill all the males, they come back, Moses is angry, you didn't do enough. Kill all the women that were involved with the sexual relations with Israel, back those several chapters ago, and the males among the little ones. What kind of God is that, people ask. What kind of God is that, you might ask. You might be sitting there going, what kind of church did I just walk into today? A church that opens the Bible and doesn't pretend like certain things aren't there, that kind of church. And I don't know if I have all the answers with you today, but I think one of the, some of the reasons why we wrestle with this is because we don't have the broader context of what's going on. We need to remember that these people were a people who for hundreds of years were at enmity with God and God didn't uh, strike them down right away. They pressed against Israel and God knows that if he leaves them around they will continue to press Israel and Israel is not strong enough to resist them and he'll lose his covenant relationship with his people. So to protect his covenant relationship with his people he has to put down those who oppose that relationship. If you think that this is an Old Testament truth, an Old Testament God, and then when you get to the New Testament, you get something different, you've not read the New Testament, you've read uh, curated verses out of the New Testament. Who in the New Testament begs God To look down on the earth at those who are against God's people and kill them. Asking God, part of their prayer meeting is asking God to kill them. That's the book of Revelation. And who comes to kill them? Who comes riding a horse with a sword to chop down the enemies of God? Jesus. The one with the blush on his cheeks and the old paintings in your mom's church basement. He's like holding a lamb, cuddling it. Him. Him. The warrior Jesus, the king of kings. Who does Psalm 2 talk about as the nations rage against God's anointed? What does he do? He gives them to God's anointed. Not to cuddle, to crush. To crush. Psalm 2, Revelation, they're not different. They're the same. And this is the issue. We worship a caricature of God. A jolly ho-ho-ho God. We climb up on his lap. We ask him for things. He gives it. He would never spank. He would never hurt. He would never correct. He would never rebuke. He's not about vengeance. But we forget that both Paul and the author of Hebrews reminds us not to take vengeance. Why? They don't say because vengeance is wrong. Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't take what's mine. Vengeance is mine to take. Now, in this episode, God extended that vengeance through Israel. Israel is going to be a tool of my vengeance. But then the New Testament, he doesn't go... Yeah, never mind. That was the Old Testament in me. I've changed my ways. I've had a new resolution, you know. I'm a new kind of God now, and I don't think vengeance is right. No, vengeance is still right. This is why you all grab your popcorn and your drink and watch The Avengers. Not because they're doing something wrong, because it's right to avenge. There is an injustice. Justice has to happen. That's what avenging is. It's different from revenge. But vindication, right, something is missing. There's something wrong here. People can push against God, spit at God, mock God, and God just sits there going, okay, sorry, I I don't know what to do. God will not be mocked. And we do the world a disservice when, A, we pretend like these verses don't exist, or, B, when they bring up these verses, we're like, oh, uh, that's, that's the Old Testament. Don't do that. God is not bipolar, God doesn't change, God isn't confused, and he doesn't need us to defend him. He doesn't need us to do a caricature of him here. This portrait looks better, and we present to the world a 2D version of God that isn't the full thing. And so you look at this passage, and even Israel, they are not the godliest of people. By and large, by the time you get to chapter 30, Israel's, they're kind of a messed up people. They don't have a great track record. They're up and down with God. A lot of them have been killed because they don't serve God correctly. And even they didn't take it far enough. And Moses is angry with them. Why is he angry with them? I think it's because it's not that they had mercy like, ah, we just don't kill women. I don't kill women. It's because these are the women that they lay with a few chapters ago. And God is like, you need to completely get rid of this sin. You need to completely get rid of this distraction. And they're like, well, we'll get rid of the obvious part, but we'll keep the part that kind of makes sense to us. And God is looking down the corridor of time and going, you're never going to make it to the promised land. Because you're not about me, you're about you. And this adulterous relationship is going to happen again. You've got to put it completely away. God is still that kind of God that's jealous for his own holiness. This is why as you move through the book of Numbers, he keeps pruning the congregation, pruning away the people that just don't want to do it his way. They want to do it their way. They want to do half and half, half what God God says and half what they feel like doing. And he sees that coming down again. This is going to happen again, and that's why Moses is angry. You need to finish the job. It was their own selfish motive as to why they didn't finish the job. So God is doing this, firstly, because he's protecting the people of Israel. But even broader than that, God is not murdering people because God is the giver and taker of life. If I take life, I'm a murderer because I don't have the right to life. I don't give life. But if God gives life, he can take life. And if he has the prerogative to give and take life, he doesn't murder. What he does is he does what is just, and he takes life from those who don't deserve life. Jesus taught on this. You remember when the disciples asked him about the tower in Siloam that fell on people? This tower fell and killed people. Like, whose fault was that? And Jesus answered, I mean, this is something we need to understand. We have the same instinct. A plane comes crashing down, or like, oh, maybe those people need it. A hurricane hits an island, or like, well, they're voodoo worshiper people. There's a shooting, and it's like, well, people shouldn't be in the theater. We have this instinct to to see people being punished by God for some evil that happened. And Jesus said, the real question you should be asking is, why didn't the tower fall on you? Why weren't you in the theater? Why didn't your plane go down? It's not because you did your devotions that morning. In other words, what Jesus is teaching is, we ask the question, how can God take vengeance on people? When the real question is, how are any of us still breathing? He's the source of life, and we rebel against him. We spurn him. Why do we still draw breath? So God has the prerogative to take out the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Israelites. And he decides when, where, how. The Midianites, they, they received mercy for centuries, centuries before God enacted justice upon them. And they didn't take the path of some who would see Israel and recognize that Yahweh is a true God and convert and be folded underneath the the Israelite covenant. They chose the path of resistance because they hate God and they hate God's people. And that's still happening today. That is still happening today. As Christians are executed, stamped out, arrested, arrested, all over the world and the resistance that we feel here i mean it's it's small time we we still just have a sort of a social awkwardness christians are it's not cool to be a christian okay well that's like level one and then other places in the world it's at level 10 where they're dying getting beheaded but if we can't handle level one we won't appreciate level 10 and if we can't appreciate level 10 We won't understand when you're reading through the Psalms. We love the shepherdy stuff. He shepherds me. He leads me by in pastures. We love that part. But when it's like, Lord, would you kill them? Would you crush them? Would you destroy them, please? We're like, ugh, and the next. But we don't long for it because we don't have our hearts in that same place with the saints in Revelation. That these people are murdering Christians. And it's not just that they murdered us. It's that they hate Jesus and they rage against the Son of God. And we love the Son, and we worship the Son, and they hate Him, and they need to be put down. This is a biblical posture. We should learn how to pray those prayers of the Psalms, not by praying specific names. You'll notice in the Psalms, He's not pointing out, I want you to kill this guy and his family. I want you to kill this person. Here's His address, God. But in general, the world... And their agenda is against god and they hate god's image to the point where they will mutilate a child's body in the name of gender it's not in the name of gender it's in the name of i hate god and i hate his design that's what it's in the name of why does this nation still exist every day we slaughter innocent babies in the womb we're aghast at this we're aghast at numbers 30 go read the newspaper go down the street where they're murdering babies And we just have our lunch. See, suddenly this isn't that distant. It's not that distant. The ugliness of the wickedness of man against God. And somebody needs to do something about it. We're not ready for the book of Revelation. Because we love the world. And we think that the world deserves more chances than the millennia that it's already had, the gospel being preached throughout it. We didn't deserve a chance. And So as we look at a passage like this, if you just pause and take a minute, you, you go, wait a minute, this makes sense. Because if you if it didn't, if it didn't have this, you'd have a God who was sort of like, I know the Midianites, but what are you going to do? Well, the Midianites harassed Israel. We saw that in chapter 25. This picks up from chapter 25, where God tells Israel, Midian has been harassing you. You need to harass them back because they're going to kill you. So I'm going to stop that so you can become a nation that gets to the promised land. I'm going to stop it. And throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, there is an us versus them. I, I hate to break it to you. It is isn't us versus them. And Jesus trained his disciples to understand the discipline of receiving hatred. And they don't hate you, they hate me, Jesus is teaching, right? They don't hate you, they hate me. But you're following me, so they're going to hate you. Because you're following me, and they hate me. So God has total rights over life, over death. And this is what Job came to understand in the end, didn't he? I cover my mouth. How dare I tell God, I don't deserve a disease. I don't deserve a loss of a job. I don't deserve to be in a smaller house. Are you kidding me? You don't deserve to say what you just said because it took breath to say it. And he's the owner of breath. We've got to get to that point. And some of us haven't gotten to that point. You might not be saved. Understand this. The thief on the cross, what he realized, the thief that converted, what he realized was, I should be on this cross. He shouldn't. And so Jesus said, you'll be with me. What what happened there? He understands I should be on this cross. There's only one out of the three of us that shouldn't be on this cross. It's Jesus. The other guy didn't get there. The other guy's like, well, we get us all down, and then maybe we can talk about it. And see, we, some of us skip the ugly stuff just to the beauty stuff. I'll accept Jesus into my heart. I'll get a mansion in heaven. Sounds like a deal. This isn't the lottery. We have to deal with the wrath stuff first. Yeah, it's ugly because we're ugly. <laughs> And none of us are sitting here because we're better than the Midianites or the Israelites, but surely because of God's grace. That's what's hard about this passage. What's hard about this passage is not how much we love Midian. We hardly know much about them. We know they attacked Israel. It's because if we serve a God who has that kind of extreme right over life and death, then where does that put us? And that's scary to think about. That's scary to think about. And it's off-putting. It's off-putting. But the Bible makes no apologies. It lays it out. This is what God decides to do. We can be thankful that we today as a church, we are not a nation. We're not trying to get into a physical land. We're not a monarchy. We're not an ethnic group. We don't carry weapons and take over lands by killing people. That's where, that's where the analogy kind of stops, it ends, or the continuity, rather, between our situation and their situation. I don't go into that office and hear a word from the Lord that's clear. Do this, do that. Right? These people should be members, these people shouldn't. Preach this next time. Tell Ben this many songs. That's not happening now, like it was for Moses. So there's another big point of discontinuity. What we have is Scripture, and as you trace Scripture all the way through, there is something that Jesus did change. And it wasn't that no more wrath, no more, now, you know, I was angry at sin in the past, but now because I died on the cross, God, He doesn't care about sin. That's not what He changed. What he changes is the mission of the congregation. You can think of John three sixteen. Many of you know it. God loved the world; he gave his son. Whoever believes in him has life. Well, who doesn't get life? If you drop down to the last verse of chapter three, still John three, still on the heels of that wonderful verse that we love. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What does that mean? Before you put, place your faith in Christ, there's wrath on you. There's wrath on you. And outside of placing your faith in Christ, that wrath remains. That wrath remains. What's happening? A fire truck? Is there a fire? What did they do? What did they do? It's not what they did. How come a fire truck isn't coming here right now? So find those snatches of moments in life. It's the wrong question. How come wrath doesn't still remain on me? That's, that's, what we're, that's our situation that we need to get out of. So there's not a blank slate. And some people get wrath because you're just really bad. They're the murderers and the rapists. And then some people get grace. And then some people, they just float in space forever because they didn't do good, they didn't do bad. They're just in this middle place. Wrath rests on everyone. Not to the same degree. Just like throughout the Old Testament, everyone didn't get punished to the same degree. And there are levels of God's wrath doled out in eternity. But, wrath nonetheless. And we've got to understand how the two go together. How does John 3.36, about God's wrath remaining on people, connect with John 3.16, that God loved the world and gave His Son? Well, the two connect by God saying, this wrath has to be doled out on man. Otherwise, I'm unjust. So how can I get man out of it, but still dole out the wrath that needs to be doled out? I'll take someone who doesn't deserve wrath, the only person who doesn't deserve wrath, he'll absorb it. Well, how can one man absorb it? He needs to be a God man. He needs to be an infinite man. He needs to be a man not normally born. He needs to be a man that can withstand temptation in the wilderness and come out the other side innocent. And I'll put wrath on that man and love the world by taking that wrath, not pretending it doesn't exist, but putting it on the anointed one. Kiss the Son, as Psalm 2 says. So John 3.16 and John 3.36, of course they connect. Because if God didn't have that wrath, why would He have to give His Son? Why a cross? Why plucking the beard? Why getting punched? Why getting his back stripped? Wrath was poured out on Christ. Why? Because that wrath was meant for us. Why is it meant for us? Because we rebel against God, all in our own ways and to varying levels. So we're not supposed to read this and go, oh, the poor Midianites. We're supposed to read this and go, how come I'm not suffering the same fate as the Midianites? Well, the reason why the Israelites didn't suffer the same fate is because they were in covenant relationship with God, and that covenant is like a canopy. That covenant is like a a refuge, the psalmist says, right? And we enter the refuge to escape the wrath of the storm. And Israel was in that refuge with God because they were in relationship to God. Now, the way in which we're different is because we don't go out in the world and dole out God's wrath on people. Rather, we're to go out into the world with a message of how to get out. It's interesting that God gives the Israelites geographical commands. Go here and wipe out Midian and go here and take care of these people and now I'm going to take you into this geographical land. But we have geographical marching orders, don't we? In Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go out into the whole world. Start in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Go out into the whole world and proclaim the gospel, the good news, because that's the only way out. So we don't only take refuge, but we communicate refuge to others. And I want to, I want to say this. I'll expose my own heart as I'm reading this. I think to myself, man, that is really harsh. That is really harsh, killing these people. But if I truly understand that, it's not just the Midianites. People all over the world in our own communities are marching on their path to eternal wrath. Do I say anything? How outraged can I really be with Numbers 31 if all around me people are, are they're, they're Midianites. They don't love the Lord. They're heading toward eternal wrath, and I don't say anything. Do I really love the Midianites? Do I really care about the Midianites? So I think we can check our hearts and go, okay, this is kind of ugly, but what's uglier is if I believe that this is true and I don't do anything about it. And their command was to go to take out all all of the Midianites. They only did some of it. And then Moses was upset for them not finishing the job. And how many of us, maybe we evangelize a couple times, maybe we talk to a couple people about the faith, but we've grown comfortable, and we've enjoyed our bubble, our Christian bubble, and it's such a headache to talk to people. They're annoying. We were them. (laughs) With their questions and their skepticism, and you know, they say things about God that hurt your heart. But you might remember there was a time when you thought about God that way. He seemed ugly to you. And so we cower from the things that we're supposed to be doing out there, not, not doling out God's wrath, but being the mechanism by which God saves people from, out from under His wrath. God's way to do it is the beautiful feet of His messengers. If you're waiting for an angel to save your neighbor, your cousin, it's not that's not how God operates. He operates through His church. And when we're quiet... We're just watching the Midianites go over the cliff, and we don't care. So I do want you to get upset about Numbers 31. I want to get upset about Numbers 31, but I don't want to get upset because I think God is unfair. I want to get upset because God has lengthened the wick on how much time He's giving people in our lives that we know that are still drawing breath from the Creator whom they spurn, and they don't know. We don't know how much longer we have with them. And we are the messengers. So we need to get ready for those awkward conversations. And when they bring up passages like Numbers 31, yeah, let's talk about it. I'm Midian. You're Midian. (laughs) Who got rescued in this whole operation? The Israelites. How do we become them? How do we get out? God provided a way out in Numbers 31. He provides a way out in John 3. He provides a way out in Revelation. How do we get out? Get them there. But if we don't, I don't think we have the right to be outraged about a passage like Numbers 31. We should be thinking about every male, every female, and all the little ones of the people in our neighboring communities who don't yet know the Lord and understand that our marching orders are no less clear than the marching orders God gave Israel in Numbers 31. It's clear. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. There's so much to say there. I'll just say a couple things quickly. Throughout the history of Christianity, especially in recent years, churches have debated about what are the best ways to do evangelism. Some people are like, hey, you need to do friendship evangelism. Befriend them first. Don't just throw the gospel at them. That's so offensive. Build a relationship first. And then other people say, no, you got to just throw the gospel at them. You don't have time to build relationships with people. All you're doing is showing them that you're, you know, cool with their lifestyle and cool with their decisions, but you never really get to the truth. I'm saying, why pick one? Do all of it. You only have five minutes with somebody, give them five minutes. You get a chance to build a relationship with someone because you frequent the same places or you work together or your neighbors great build a relationship but don't build a relationship for 25 years and they still don't know what you are a christian or that they should be one we just keep punting it down the field who's like i'm still building a relationship okay you left the mission back there somewhere what you're doing is being comfortable and i say this to myself as well i'm not some great evangelist coming back every night telling my kids hey three people today but when i look at a passage like this i'm like we should be doing something. If we really care that people are under God's wrath, we should be saying something. And we don't have to be good at it. We just have to do it. We can start with our own story. How did you find refuge? Take somebody out to lunch or breakfast or coffee and just ask them their story. And then say, I'd like to share my story now. And your story should have something in it about God rescuing you at some point. You can talk to them about that. It doesn't have to be us versus them because we have this big open door. Before the flood hits, there's room in the ark. There's room in the ark. The other thing I want to say quickly before I just wrap up the rest of the passage is I think we need to pray to this end. I mean, we can all leave here like, yeah, that was really good. I know we, we should talk to people about the Lord. People are going to hell, and we're the only way that they can know that there's any way out of it. I think we need to pray for it. Now, there can, that can be an abuse. We stay stuck in prayer. You know, we pray for someone for 30 years, and that someone 30 years later still doesn't even know we're on their pray list, prayer list. is so private, we're so scared to have the conversation. But we don't want to be good conversationalists and not back it up with prayer. And Sometimes to get us over that hump of being bold enough to say something, we need, we need prayer. You remember, before the disciples went out and started evangelizing, they had to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to do something in them first, and then they were emboldened and empowered to go out. Before that, they were scattered scaredy cats when you read the Gospels. And so, I, I want to plug our prayer. <laughs> I want to plug our prayer meetings, because if we don't start there, then what are we doing? I mean, if we, if we don't start by getting together and praying, look, I'm not good at evangelism, you're not good at evangelism, as a church, we could do a lot better with reaching people with the gospel, well, let's get together and pray for it together. I mean, this is why Jesus got upset in the temple and started flipping tables, and he said, what is, what is you've turned this into a marketplace, what is it supposed to be? Mark 11? A house of prayer for what? For our needs, my dog, my cold. I hope I don't catch COVID. For the nations. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. And all you guys care about is yourselves, Jesus is communicating. He wasn't half-hearted about it, and he took his time. He went and made a whip, you remember? (laughs) I mean, he went, the disciples are looking at him, he's in the corner weaving a whip. I'll be with you in a minute. I mean, it wasn't just a a fit of rage out of nowhere. He's like, I'm going to clear this out because this has become like a business and it's supposed to be a mission. And so if we're going to get to that point, if we're going to get to that place, we need to pray for it. We have a prayer meeting tonight right here. If you're not comfortable praying out loud, just be with us. You know, just be with us and support us in prayer in your heart as some of the rest of us pray, but it's not like the rest of us are like, I can't wait till people hear me pray. I'm going to pray for 30 minutes straight. I can't wait till, I hope someone's recording it. We're all sheepish about praying. None of us know exactly what to say. It is awkward for all of us. Over time, you'll start, okay, I'm going to pray a short line, but this is what we're supposed to be about. Church is not supposed to be just a service. We come, we hear something cool. What's for lunch? It's supposed to be more than that, and we can't become more than that if we're not starting with the basics of praying being a house of prayer for the nations. Why? Because the nations are dying, including this one, including this one. The primary tactic is not forwarding the Facebook posts of your favorite politician, so that hopefully you can convert, you know, all the people from the opposite party on your Facebook page. Newsflash: Not going to happen. I mean, if you take a survey, how many of you you saw a post and you were like, "Oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong party"? Probably not. But if you can go out there in the power of God's Spirit and communicate to people God's grace that rescues us from our deserved wrath. Now, they might look at you and like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't deserve wrath. But if you see a crack in that iceberg and they recognize, man, I think I do deserve wrath, that's not how good you said it. That's the Spirit of God drawing that person back to the Father. We're a mechanism. We're not the, we're not the source of power. So we need to go out there and proclaim it. We need to go out there and have those conversations. Quickly, we see that in verses 21 and forward, we won't read all of it, uh, but they are taking the, um, the, the soldiers that participated in this and purifying themselves because they still took life. They took life even though God commanded them to take life. You know that they're not supposed to touch corpses? Well, they produce corpses. And they needed to be purified because this whole thing is ugly. And God is the source of pure life. And so they needed to purify themselves. They needed to purify the equipment. And then all the spoils that they got from the land, starting in verse 32, you see all those numbers there and those commas. We're not going to sit here and do math, but they distributed between the soldiers and the people. And out of what went to the people, what went to the priests. And these things were divided among them. And if you go all the way down to verse 54, Moses and Eliezer the priest received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. This memorial would stand as the way in which God conquered the world, conquered a world that was against him and that was against his people. And he takes the spoils of that conquering and... Divides it among his people. And this is why Jesus said, the the one thing I'm going to flip is when you're being persecuted, you be meek. Because the meek will what? Inherit the earth. And our path to that is through meekness. Why? Because right there in Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus is explaining, your good works can change people. And rather than killing them, we might actually save them from being ultimately killed by God's wrath. How you handle persecution of the world is a voice of gospel goodness to those who are still under God's wrath. And so we take the persecution with meekness, knowing that right now is not our time to divide the spoils. That's later. Right now, we respond to a world that makes it hard to be a Christian, we respond in Christian ways. And we don't use worldly tactics to get back at them. We love them with the love of Christ. But we're not loving them if we give them half-truths. We have to give them the whole thing. There's wrath that we all deserve. And the only way out is for the God-man Jesus Christ to absorb that wrath. This refuge is created. You can hide in Him. I've taken refuge there. Would you join me? Would you join me in taking refuge in Christ? Let's pray. Father, as the worship team comes up,